Hello, welcome to Dustbusters, your inseparable companion podcast to His Dark Materials. I'm Jake Cunningham, and my favourite series of books ever is His Dark Materials. And I'm Louisa Maycock. Jake and I have been together for almost a decade, and yet I've never found myself reading a single one of these books. And this is the last episode of this series of the podcast, and it's all about the last episode of series two of the show. It's all extremely climactic and emotional for us, I mean, as we are recording this the day after a fresh lockdown was put in place, days before Christmas. So, uh, like last week on the podcast, where we were a bit manic due to lack of sleep, this week we might be similarly off-kilter thanks to a terrible, terrible government. And also, Peggy woke up at four this morning. Yeah. <laughs> Again, so it seems to be... Maybe that's that's her as our, our manager, kind of getting us into shape to, you know, kind of Brian Eno producing technique of just like, get up really early to produce some magic you wouldn't normally think of. I feel a bit less loopy than I did last week, but probably still only operating at about 78%. 78, very specific. 78 is pretty good. Um who knows it could decrease at any moment yeah it's it's certainly gonna fluctuate we're sending all our love to everyone who might be listening to this and hoping everyone stays safe and well and takes care yes uh for this episode and this time it's very much uh one of tears and tears i suppose uh but before we do get into this one louis can you remind us what happened in episode six Last week's episode, we saw Mary step through into Chittagatse and encounter some children where she said she would take them to their adults. And she also um, was sitting down in a boat. Was she in a boat? Near a boat. Near a boat. Vital detail I feel I must relay in this (laughs) recap. (laughs) And um, some angels were seen behind her very briefly. You're trying very hard to remember. Listeners, I wish I could relay the, the focused intensity of Louis's face. She delves back all the way to last weekend. Don't you just feel like this week has been long? Oh, yeah. I think we can forgive you and any listener for uh, not remembering exactly what happens in every episode. It's when stuff happens at the Magisterium and I just find it very tricky to keep it in my brain. Well, Louis, you could say that we have trouble keeping up with what our Magisterium <laughs> has to say. <laughs> Um, yeah the magisterium they decided that to go through the anomaly and wage war because of Lyra yes because she will bring about some cataclysm Japari and Lee continuing mm-hmm. on their journey I think they stayed in the air, in the hot air balloon the entire episode last week didn't they yeah kind of a staycation yeah staycation <laughs> probably quite safe air travel to be honest yeah if they're in a bubble i'd believe if joe parry's balloon ended up as like one of those boutique airbnbs joe parry's balloon yeah (laughs) (laughs) lee's balloon (laughs) you're losing it as well i certainly am um but we did witness joe parry using his shaman skills to take down some airships in a very cool yeah scene um will and lyra 
Yeah, they were uh, busy doing some stuff. They were. <laughs> I think that's fair. I think I think they they were perhaps their least important in last week's episode. They were kind of just they went into the woods beyond Chitagatse, followed the Eleutheometer up the mountain, met the witches. Yeah, I'm sort of summoning a sh- shamanesque. You've put your hood up. Yeah, because you've remembered two other characters who had a pretty important time. Mrs. Coulter and Boreal. The shaman worked, she remembered. I just had a yeah, from the na- from the um, atmosphere came down the final details of last week's episode. Mrs. Coulter did a little murder. <laughs> <laughs> just a little one. In petty murder. <laughs> yeah, so Boreal goes to the little place in our hearts <laughs> where Roger now lives. <laughs> or does he? Who is to say? You say that, that with a, a wink in your voice there, Louis, and uh, we will get into that far later in this episode. But, but really, you... Mrs. Coulter is unravelling at this point. Yeah. And she, she threads is... are but coming she... out all ends. She remains such fun to watch. Mm-hmm. Um Okay, so now we are firmly caught up with every nook and cranny of detail from last week's episode. Let us dive into Series 2, Episode 7, The Finale, Asa Hetra. Okay, so as we have done throughout our series, we've kind of split up everyone into their different locations, but... People are converging here. This is very much all happening in in the world of Chittagatse, and there's only a little bit of stuff beyond that. Um, but there's lots to cover here. But so we'll, we'll kick off with Mary Malone, just because her story isn't quite as threaded with everyone else's. So as you said, Larry, she steps into the city. Uh, she's made friends with the kids, and they lead her out of the city into the forest. And she in a little cave. Uh, back in a cave, in fact. She loves a cave. <laughs> Mary Stan's cave. Loves a cave. Um, she uses her I Ching divination device and I Ching Bible, I suppose, uh, which tells her that her task is not complete and to proceed with caution. And mentioned before that uh, we're getting Amber Spyglass Mary stuff here, stepping through the window. This was all new territory. Um, Louis, because Mary's journey beyond this is unique and was certainly written in such a way that it would need a lot of imaginative power to visualise, I'd love to ask you, what do you think Mary's role in all of this is? We know that she is to be the serpent, but what does that mean? What what lies ahead for her? I have no idea. <laughs> Because so far, yeah, she's been set up as such a, what we expect is going to be a vital character. But she sort of feels to me like she's on the outskirts of something. Yeah, I think I think that's very true. And I don't expect Mary to start slithering around on the ground like a snake. <laughs> well, I mean, it would it would be a great reveal if she did. Like Maybe she... she's going to become Will's demon. And that she has actually been kind of a youthful demon this whole time that could transform into a scientist and has been kind of in that form the whole time. That's not going to happen. 
<laughs> well, there is there is a lot uh, to get into. Hopefully, when the Amber Spyglass, or I mean, series three does happen about Mary's quest. If you go back into this series, uh, there was a little hint at it when she's in the lab and uh, holds up a piece of amber. Uh, and so that kind of hints to you, listeners, who may not be familiar with the books, how key Mary will come to be, that the amber, in fact, mostly correlates to her plot in the story to come. And she has amber-coloured hair. She does. In fact, the spyglass is the hair. <laughs> and she just gets a cool new hairdo. And people just look through the hair. Yeah, because it's so shiny. Like when you're sitting at a cinema. Can you remember sitting at the cinema? Oh, gosh. And having to watch what, the screen through someone's cinema? hair. <laughs> this thing you speak of? Is cinema. That, yeah. I thought it was that fictional thing that <laughs> Will and Lyra did, uh, where they saw a, a, some kind of image in a, on a projection in a room full of people. Uh, a cr- another crazy Philip Pullman creation there, wasn't it? <laughs> Philip Pullman did actually invent the cinema. Did he? Yeah. Did he? God, yeah. his imagination. Eh? Yeah. Um, right, let's jump in to Lee and Joparry. So this is joined in media res because they have managed to take down a few airships, but there are still a few men on the ground as well. So we're battling through the jungle. Uh, Lee catches a bullet in the ankle and Japari kind of for once sounding like someone who comes from our world just as as they hid behind a tree just turned and just went you're right <laughs> <laughs> and I don't like it was a bit of kind of real world Andrew Scott just slipping in as if he had forgotten and Limamo Miranda had just fallen over <laughs> oh, you're right oh. um and a reminder that he does come from our world, as as powerful as he might be. And it's nice to see them like this, because they've spent a lot of time bonding, and they feel like proper brothers in arms here. In their, We've in their not fight. really seen that time, though. No, but I... I, I think, wish we'd seen more of it. I think that's fair. Um, in In the brief moments that we have had them together, we've said before, it's like, these are proper, like big actors who have to handle big characters and do so fairly well, even if you might think Lynn is a little musical theatre about it. <laughs> but we can't blame him for that. Um, I think the, these sequences, the sequence is really good um, because the music is so strong here and we haven't really talked about the music, but we mentioned it in episode one that as soon as the main theme kicked in, we were reminded just how good Lorne Balfe's score is. And this is kind of a more intense, more emotional, um, more reflective version of Lee's theme that's appeared throughout, which is kind of got that feeling of the show, but a touch of the Ramin Djawadi work on Westworld as well, because you know, he's a cowboy type character. So inject some of that Western flair into it. And this one has a heightened emotion to it, which is needed because this is an incredibly emotional scene because Lee does get one in the ankle but then he gets a few more doesn't he he knows that he needs to protect Japari because Japari's got his own quest which leads to the protection of Lyra and that is all Lee wants 
and so with some cover fire taking out the Magisterium soldiers uh, he manages to set Japari on his way but in doing so leads to his own demise and uh, this is a very very sad chapter in the book it's also the most intense chapter action wise because I've mentioned that these are very episodic chapters in the subtle knife and the whole airship sequence and the whole gulch canyon sequence that all just runs one into the next into the next and it's really high energy and then you just have to deal with this ending of the chapter but where i think a couple of episodes back we were talking about how his feelings for lyra have sort of given him a reason to live on the other hand also gives him a reason to die yeah. to protect her ultimately yeah, um, and he goes down a hero which is a fitting end for the character I think yeah and great work great demon work here that's what got me yeah Hester in that scene is so good we're a helping Lyra it's just it's just a lot and the way it's you don't see Hester disappear it just it's it keeps a kind of close up on Lee, and then you just see those dusty particles float up in front, and you know that she's gone as well, and that makes it somehow worse. I know, um, and this is maybe my my favourite line from the subtle knife, um, because in a moment like that, with the character that you've spent many many pages with and lots of time with, and who is almost cartoonish as a character because he's so big and his beliefs are so strong that you expect the ending to be kind of like epic and the language of the text to be reflective of that and Pullman does the opposite and in doing so makes it even more powerful well it's the whole um what's the poem that goes something like the world ends not with a bang but with a whimper mm. So I'll just read the line here. And this is the end of the chapter after everything that's just happened. Then she was pressing her little proud, broken self against his face, as close as she could get. And then they died. (laughs) And it's like age-old English and creative writing professors saying, just strip it back, strip it back. Just say exactly what happens. Yeah. No metaphors, no grand flowery language just oh yeah and it reminds me of never using your uh kind of anything other than said in a dialogue scene that said is all you need he said she said he said just said just said and then here it's that same thing except it's died yeah and it's just that that cold brutality of ending it there yeah but I mean, they the interpretation of that for the show was slightly different. And there's mm. given more dialogue, obviously. And I think it was handled nicely. Because you read that final sentence to me afterwards. I was in floods of tears. Yeah. Th- I think, this, is this the, <laughs> I think you, you cried with Roger and you cried Not again. Not the same way, though. Is this, is, this is the most intense thing. I you've... think there's something about humans where when it, it's to do with animals... Mm. It gets you 
it hits you in a place that's just deeper. Yeah. And it's when he says to her, don't please, don't you go before I do. Yeah. I'd say that to you. Yeah. <laughs> You'd say that to Peggy. Yeah. No, like, hmm. hopefully Peggy's got a long old life of barking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're doing this for treats. Yeah. Okay, um, so that was... Uh, That's that done? Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you forget that there's uh, a lot more that we need to cover as well. It uh, was such an... Uh, so gigantic uh, an occurrence. There was so much more of the episode to go. Yeah. And uh, I suppose you not knowing the plot, you, you're thinking kind of like the emotion... The emotional high of the episode is surely gone. Now it's just kind of set up and it's cold. Um, but there's still some uh, trauma to get I don't through. know why I wasn't expecting it. Mm. Because it's a an age-old tool. Yeah. Isn't it? Kill off some main characters. You've got to do it. I was naive. So let's jump into The Witches and Lyra and Will. So the episode begins with them caring for the witch who got slightly spectered but scared off by Will and his knife. Um, we get a brief shot of Rutuscardi, the uh, other witch leader who overhears some cliff ghasts who are very well designed, quite horrible kind of bat monkeys. Um, bunkies. Bunkies. <laughs> they reminded me because we watched... Um, we watched Krampus, the horror Christmas film, and there's a demon teddy bear in that who's got a really horrible wide mouth yeah, with loads of chompy teeth. teeth. Yeah. <laughs> Reminded me, unfortunately, a bit of that as well. But a great creation. And uh, they're talking about Lord Asriel's plan, which is that he's going to wage war against the authority, and he's recruiting as many people as possible to join him in that. And then Ruta heads back to the forest around Chittagatse to find Lyra and Will and Serafina too. Uh, that sounds like a weird version of Rita Sue and Bob too. <laughs> a strange <laughs> fantasy version. Um, so Will... Actually, in fact, everyone's having a bit of a sleep in this one. Which um, Very weird sleep time. Just yeah, having a nap. daytime nap. Just sitting upright. Mm, power naps maybe maybe they've got an alarm set for 24 minutes for optimum nap isn't it 26 is it 26 yeah maybe that's why mine never work missing those well you can't nap can you it's true listeners I can't nap I'm thinking I might have a nap later on today I'm sure you will enjoy it if I can so Will in his little nap uh, (laughs) is getting messages from Japari that the telling him about the knife and how important it is and that it can kill the authority and Pan goes and talks to him they have a lovely little chat little Pan will chat without Lyra there always nice to see Um, he tells Pan that he thinks Lyra is the bravest very sweet and then Pan goes round to find Lyra and once again second time this series listening in don't you don't you remember I misheard a line in this, what, in this what scene. Did you, <laughs> you know when um, Will is saying how he's talking about best friends. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do remember this. So when Will says that uh, Lyra is the best friend 
that he's ever had. Yeah. And he hasn't had many friends. <laughs> Lou, you misheard that as Will saying that he has, in fact, got many friends. It's, so he said that, he said, I've not had many friends, or I may be paraphrasing. And I just blurted out, all right, humble brag, <laughs> because I thought he'd said, I've had many friends. <laughs> You know, he was saying, I've had loads of friends, but Lyra's special. Yeah. I mean, either way, it's still putting Lyra in a good light. All right. H- humble brag. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Lyra and Pan, they they curl up in an image that I've certainly come to recognise uh, just from recording this podcast. because I don't curl up and go to sleep whilst you're recording the podcast. No, but Peggy curls up and sits on you just in the same way that Pan curls up next yeah. to Lyra. And that's exactly what this image is right now, listeners, if you want to imagine what the show looks like. After Peggy's early rise, she has crashed now. She has, thankfully. Lyra and Pan talk about the fact that Lyra feels like she's changing. Pan says that he doesn't want to change. Um, We've all been there, folks. Pan's saying he's finding fur in places that it didn't used to be. But when they talk about demons settling, which is what happens at a certain stage in adolescence, that a demon will stop being able to transform, uh, he says that he would like to turn into a flea. <laughs> which weird. is a nicely weird choice, almost a magisterium choice. They always seem to have the weirdest ones. Or maybe uh, Pan is just a big fan of the red hot chili peppers. <laughs> <laughs> and that he's going to turn into a, like a short, bald bass player. He wants to become Flea. Yeah. Um, Lyra goes back to bed. (laughs) Well, not back to bed. Back up against a rock. And Will gets up with the knife. uh, And he is called towards something or other. But it is, in fact, Japari, a.k.a. John Parry. Daddy, yes, you're right, Louis. He is daddy. He's daddy. Yeah, he's Mr. Napkin Head. (laughs) (laughs) He's almost got a napkin head. It's just like a big hood. I felt that this scene was nicely emotionally complicated. It wasn't like that rush to the airport reunion feeling. There was a foreboding feeling across the whole thing. And naturally, as viewers who might be invested in both of these characters and who have more information about their relationship than they do. We want we want them to be together and be happy and that this can be everything that Will wants it to be and everything that Joe Perry wants it to be, but it can't. Um, and it felt like... A bit like when Lyra and Roger turn up to the lab at the end of series one and because they think that when we find Lord Asriel, that's going to be everything solved but in fact, his reaction is the opposite of what they want it to be. And it only makes everything more complicated. It certainly does. Um, Joe Parry looks at Will, who is who is the knife bearer, this person that he's been seeking out the entire series. And it should be that finding him kind of puts a seal at the end of his quest, but knowing the prophecy of the knife bearer what the knife bearer must do the fact that the knife bearer is his son suddenly complicates that and he's clearly proud that his son has this task but also knows the 
danger that will be ahead of him. So it's this pride mixed with concern. And they they get a lot more here in, than they do in the book. <laughs> really? Yeah. So That must it, be so disappointing in the book when there's been all this build-up. Well, I think that's, to me, what that's what the subtle life is. Like, it's just this big kind of escalation of ideas beyond Northern Lights and then right at the end of it it's almost takes you back to where you were at the end of Northern Lights because it just does the exact same thing that you thought it, it couldn't possibly do often. it sort of like eats its own tail yeah you've got like a father and a son chasing each other through different worlds that their love is so strong and uh, you bring them together and what do you do kill the dad yeah. <laughs> we shouldn't laugh no but, we shouldn't laugh um, particularly after seeing Lee go just a few minutes before were, were you expecting this to happen though? And I'm disappointed if I tell you the truth yeah maybe this is just me being upset that we're not going to get more Andrew Scott but well I think the writing was on the wall as soon as they suggested that after going out killing the authority with the knife that they would then go home you can't say that you'll go home together like in films or on tv shows when some reunited characters make a plan to do something later on this that evening yeah no way well i'll see you at the event at 8 p.m no you won't absolutely you'll both be dead yeah and (laughs) never say you're going home no this reminds me of your your favourite ending to your childhood stories that you would write, Louis. <laughs> <laughs> so whatever adventure had just happened between you and your fictional characters, they would all end in the same way. They had fish fingers for tea. <laughs> <laughs> and then they went home and had fish fingers <laughs> for tea. <laughs> Lovely. But we have to remember, Drapari died to save his son. He did. Now, this is different. And I think I would really have been intrigued by them doing the book version of this um, because it gets it makes Jopari quite a complicated character in the across worlds a bit more. Um, whereas he's he's certainly lived a life, but he's he's a straight arrow, and this gives him a touch more of an Azrael quality, mm. um, his, the, or the book version. So. In the show, it's a leftover Magisterium soldier that shoots him, which annoys me a bit because if that's a Magisterium soldier that was left over from the airship, then that means Lee didn't get all of them. And in the book, it's like Lee gets all of them. He like And he dies for a purpose. Yeah. And then if Lee let one go, and then is it down to Lee not getting all of them that this happens? Mm. It's not as clean. And in the book, it's a witch who Jopari wouldn't couple with and out of spite kills him and then, in front of Will, kills herself. Like, as if it wasn't savage enough for Will. Like, that you have to witness all of that. What's the witch's name in the book? Can you remember? Yeah, the witch was called uh, Juta Kaimanen. It's catchy. Yeah. Rolls off the tongue really easily. <laughs> yeah. So, like, coupling with. Romantically. Romantically coupling. Yeah, so that's what I mean about him 
I mean, he couldn't go back into his own world and rejoin Will and his wife and stuff. So yeah, you understand that he has he has needs. And well, does he? Maybe he's a eunuch. Yeah. Just cut that out. <laughs> Let's not have the word eunuch in our nice podcast. Um, but that would have been like a lot to set up. Like I don't know when you could. Have I w- organically that would have been a, that, that would have been amazing though. That yeah. You have had a richer foundation of what Japari's been up to for mm. all these years. Yeah. Because surely he's not just been wandering alone in the woods. I'm just imagining him as like the front cover on the Taylor Swift albums that came out this year. <laughs> that that's just been Japari. <laughs> Sad girl autumn. Yeah. Because that's just his his whole vibe, his whole aesthetic. Yeah. I mean that that jacket's quite Sad Girl Autumn. Yeah? Yeah. Is Japari Sad Girl Autumn Girls? Yeah. Okay. Um Just likes a pumpkin spice latte. <laughs> nice cozy knitted socks. Uh he just needs a cardigan. Yeah. That's me with my one bit of Taylor Swift knowledge. <laughs> um uh, on his way out though, Jabari says a line which I read as like an almost a dig at the kind of oppressive bleakness of Game of Thrones um, not to say that Dark Materials is like a jolly romp but on his way out even though he's been killed in front of his son and we've just had Lee dying there is hope and he says the night is full of angels and what's do you remember the the line that's repeated by the, the followers of the Lord of the Light in Game of Thrones the night is dark and full of terrors exactly and I just think, oh, here we've got this this fantasy show where the night is full of angels. But also angels mean a very different thing than what we might be used to. So Will's journey, totally brutal, uh, very comparable to series one Lyra. I think Lyra maybe gets an easier time in this one and Will has to carry the, the weight of... The world. Yeah. On his shoulders. Absolutely does. And then he, he picks up the knife. He takes Japari's cloak, puts his puts it over his head. Very cool. Um, and I, I just kind of want to remind people, because it, I don't know if the show really makes it that clear, and I don't know why it would, because it's not going to spell it out, that Will has a knife that has the power to kill the authority, and the authority being what within these worlds are God. Yes, because I always thought the authority was mixed up somehow in the magisterium. Or it was a another word for the magisterium. But no, you, you asked me in another sort of school test format, which you <laughs> love to do for some reason. <laughs> so, Louis, what do you think uh, the authority is? I sound like the worst kind of RE teacher there, don't yeah. I? <laughs> hey, kids... What do you think about the authority? <laughs> Didn't you get a really good grade at RE? A star. <laughs> uh, that's what good Catholic boys get. <laughs> um, you love the authority. I do. I, I love the authority. Um, but I, I, do, I do think that that is amazing. That there is this... 12-year-old boy who's got a knife that is going to kill God. Just, like, when you say it out loud... It's crazy. How good does that sound? And that you've just got him and Lyra and their their chemistry is blossoming in a bit and you've got these two young kids what do they want to do they just want to go out in the world and kill God 
just have a lovely time just rite of passage really yeah just amazing um okay miss coulter in chittagatse she heads to the will and lyra house the negroni house finds her coat gives a little sniff um get that fresh lyra scent (laughs) and we get some pretty gruesome coulter witch action here because now miss coulter has the power of the spectres within her arsenal of kind of I suppose verbal and mental weapons she's now got these horrible things too and the spectre envelops the witch's demon and kind of sucks it up like a whirlpool tornado yeah yeah and and you see the the witch's like the colour just kind of strain out of her yeah um but I, I think these the spectres have really worked for for something that, as as we know, from the subtle life, which is very much from kids' perspective, and these things are things that kids cannot see. Mm-hmm. They've done well to turn them into like a really physical threat, and they don't feel at all hammy. No, no, you, like they could be like a, a ghost in a sheets type situation, um, but they they're almost mechanical. Like they almost grind them to death at mm. like a point that like you know when uh, you see like someone who get, gets their tie stuck in some machinery at a factory and they get pulled into it and squished reminded me a little bit of that um, but in talking to the witch Miss Coulter learns all the stuff about Lyra and the prophecy and that she is Eve and then we get a, a bit of context on that from Mrs Coulter who is now talking to herself a bit more fair enough she's been through a lot as well and when you've when you've done a murder probably gonna I get a feeling it's not her first murder you reckon or she's now done two murders yeah she's I reckon she's done more than two murders her sophomore murder yeah um and she says that Lyra is Eve before the fall and that she must not fall so pure untouched mm-hmm. what else was Eve naked <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, she was and I, I suppose Eve represents a kind of state of innocent obedience towards yeah. God that is unquestioned or an obedience towards man because yeah. wasn't Eve created from Adam's rib certainly was product of man yeah um and Eve ate the apple, which created knowledge, self-awareness, and shame. That, yeah, that Lyra represents Eve, and that Mrs. Coulter does not want her to bring down another fall. Does not want to descend humanity into sin again. What she might view as sin. Although you Mrs. and I might... definitely very sinful. Yeah, but like you and I would absolutely not think of those things. Like self-awareness, the ability to question your master, kind of, uh, kind of shame, depth of thought. Like these are things that are absolutely not things that are bad necessarily. No, it's also definitely not something that children could comprehend. Yeah, crazy Burkes. <laughs> <laughs> we do get a little moment with a character who has evolved in our hearts a little bit over this series, one that we never thought would happen. 
golden monkey? Sorry, Peggy's just licking my finger. <laughs> We're talking about up, Peggy, Peg? who's evolved over the series. Yeah, I think the golden monkey's been misunderstood. You think? I think so. Justice for golden monkey. I think sh- the golden monkey is... Golden think, monkey innocent. <laughs> hashtag free golden monkey. <laughs> I think it just is think, starting to be freaked out by Mrs. Coulter's actions. Well, she threatens the golden monkey with a spectre. Yeah, and which... And properly terrified. Which, if you unpick more, is yeah, very I sinister. Yeah, mentioned she's doing more talking to herself she says that she's you're either with me or against me to the golden monkey and if we remember that the demon is a reflection of your inner soul then she is talking to herself there and is therefore asking herself whether she is with her or against her there's some definite inner turmoil going on yeah some push and pull yeah but again if we go down this rabbit hole of perhaps separation with the golden monkey then that might explain this kind of thing um there is the possibility i would this is just a theory so i kind of skirted around this but i think it's it's worth thinking about because i think it can help inform this experience of mrs coulter or inform on the Mrs. Coulter experience <laughs> is that in one of the later books it's revealed something that makes absolute sense and I don't know how I didn't consider it before that there is a trade of black market demons and oh. that if a demon can separate and someone's demon leaves or whatever um, that you could in fact purchase a demon for yourself that is not your own yours um, and as soon as I got into that stuff, and like that makes for some really tragic stories, which the secret Commonwealth really is. Um, but as soon as I read that, I thought about the Golden Monkey, and I thought about Mrs. Coulter's ability to suppress her humanity, as she says it. You think if Mrs. Coulter separated from her own demon and then got this black market one that she, we have never heard her, and also. Lots of the demons we see are sort of domesticated animals. Mm. A golden monkey is not a domesticated animal that you would find in the Western world, really. So, yeah. And it doesn't. Some trading of illegal animals. And it doesn't communicate like the other demons yeah. do. Oh, um, golden monkey. And there, there is a really sad dog in the Secret Commonwealth, um, which it has has come from this background, and it's just such a horrible thing to read um but i would recommend everyone read that book because i (laughs) i think i think in terms of demon law it informs a lot yeah it absolutely heightens everything that happens in dark materials i wonder what mrs coulter's original demon would have been yeah ferret ferret (laughs) definitely ferret i think yeah because she's got such like good almost 50s outfits in yeah. this it would be something like a mink that you could wear as a <laughs> scarf very good yeah, yeah. very very good a not danish mink miss Coulter steps out of chitigatse into the forest where she finds a sleeping lyra sets a spectre on the witch that's meant to be guarding her another murder another murder God, that's three now like. yeah a trilogy yeah um and she takes lyra 
puts her in a box, takes her away. Um, great kind of purple coat and headscarf in this bit. Reminded me of Carol. Oh yeah, very Carol vibes. I think but you could place her in the film Carol. It's it's very confusing moments towards the end of their <clears throat> their story in this season. Is it tenderness? Is it what is it? Because obviously, if you you you're okay, you're a mother, and you've just found oh. <laughs> you've just found your daughter who you've been desperately searching for, and then you drug her and put her in a old suitcase. Yeah, you trunk. certainly do. Um, and as she says, I'm taking her somewhere entirely safe. Uh, well, I don't think it's going to be a nice holiday. No. <laughs> Fuerteventura. <laughs> Butlins. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's a weird one. And I, I think Lyra kind of fizzles out a bit as a character in this series. It definitely shifts to Will, mm-hmm. which is fair and deserved. Um, but it does mean that Lyra's kind of finale of this episode is... Sleeping in a falling box. Falling asleep and yeah. getting taken into a box. Um, but what can you do? You win some, you lose some, eh? Um, <laughs> Sometimes you end up in a box. You do. Um, but nobody puts Lyra in a box. <laughs> Apart from Mrs. Coulter. Um, and there is there is a couple more pivotal characters that we haven't mentioned. Uh, we've got Asriel, who perfectly narrates a great montage sequence that's just a kind of remember these characters <laughs> type sequence. And we get uh, we get all the characters we've seen in this one. We get Yorick as well. Uh, everyone Everyone's getting ready for something and he's calling them to war. And then it cuts to James McAvoy screaming and then the reverse shot where there's, there's nothing there. And it's just, I'm just imagining James McAvoy having to stand in what would... I imagine have just been a random quarry in Wales <laughs> doing this massive call to arms to nothing. Um, but then descending from the sky like shooting stars, you get these angels and they're joining him. We've got Ruta Scardi has decided to join with the witches. Who else is going to wage this war on the authority? See the Magisterium, they're pro-authority. And everyone is going to descend in this space, which is quite Mordory. We're going back to Lord of the Rings again, but potential for a lot of fun fighting, I suppose. This scene felt a bit slotted in. Yeah, and I, I think it probably was because of that missing half-shot Lord Asriel episode. Yeah, I do wonder where this would have slotted in. I reckon that it probably would have this scene would have actually been part of that episode mm. and that episode would have actually been the penultimate one. Yeah. And uh, because they would have had Lee and Japari bringing down the ships and then you have a whole week that's on another storyline and then you come back and it's like, yeah. ah. Yeah. Uh, oh, that's what I imagine anyway. They, But that does make me think, like, surely like they've got this. They can do a ransom with this unused James McAvoy footage, which was almost finished. And he's like, oh, you've got to let us do Amber Spyglass now, because we already paid James McAvoy for this. Week. Can't they just finish it off on Zoom? Um. <laughs> FaceTime. <laughs> a Zoom party. Imagining the scope of the Amber Spyglass. <laughs> Via <laughs> Zoom. Just do it on Zoom. <laughs> What do you think he'd set his background as? Oh, um... Snowy mountains. Yeah, yeah, he's, he loves the north, doesn't he? Um, and 
we think that after all of that, the episode has ended. The credits play. And then your little face. Ooh. Shook. I was certainly shook because... Little voice we recognise, we know so well. Calling out into the night for help. It's me, Roger. <laughs> it certainly is. Uh, in a kind of wet, purpley filter. But Our old friend. Old mate. Old mate, Roger. Amazing. We love to see him. <laughs> Hello there. Hello there, Lyra. Is he Irish? Yes. Where did that come from? <laughs> Um, yeah, so Roger is here. Roger is somewhere calling out to Lyra. A madness. Um, so, yeah, that is everything that happened in the episode. So much. Um, Louis, assessing the series, what do you reckon? How did series two go down for you? Better than the first season, I think. Yeah? Um, I think because Will and Lyra are growing up, the scope becomes bigger. I felt like I really cared in that final episode and I don't think I mean sure I was upset when we lost Roger but it felt like a surface grief yeah whereas this I could have happily watched another episode straight away great um I I think the back half of this series was certainly stronger Mm -hmm. which I think is uh, I suppose a reflection of the book as well Mm -hmm. because as I've said it's you're introducing so many new ideas new characters um that once you're kind of bedded in after those first three episodes you understand the the stakes um, and how the worlds work it makes it a bit easier I think it absolutely has shown um, how valuable it was to set up Will in series one though because imagine if it was completely new yeah so Amber Spyglass comes next it does indeed what would happen if I just started reading that book without having read the other two you'll have a great time I just don't know if I have it in me to go back to the very first book and have... Well, you, you mentioned that you might like to listen to them as audiobooks. Yeah, I think that's probably a best, better idea. Although, when? Exactly. I never. We don't go anywhere. Yeah. There's no commute. I know. Um, I, I think that Lee and Japari probably could have done with a bit more time. I think they could have had a whole episode for themselves. Um, they were such an interesting duo together. Yeah. And the nice nice chemistry between them and a good dynamic. I think, yeah, I did feel a bit short-changed. Yeah, I think that's fair, particularly considering how important Jeff Harry is in this story. But, I mean, that's something that you, you can't Con- change the book as Considering well. how Boreal just dies, mm. we got so much more Boreal than Jeff Harry. Yeah, and we did. And Lee. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, both... Lee dies and Japari also dies but they seem more crucial yeah yeah no one they're not just no the pawn boreal no um and maybe some people are I mean I'm mourning that outfit <laughs> you look great <laughs> uh and I, I think it was almost like they were listening to the podcast where in the first few episodes we were saying about the magisterium bureaucracy kind of feeling a bit dragged out mm-hmm. and that got almost cut down in yeah. this back half as well like and every episode you got less yeah um, and I mean I think it's a shame that as much time got has spent with them because to me they're quite a binary evil they're quite plainly being presented as these baddies and I think the, the books are less concerned uh, with that compared to 
Asriel, mm. who's a character whose plan we might agree with, but who we don't really trust. And his methods might be yeah. a bit... And then Mr. Coulter, who seems plainly evil, but we almost can't help but root for her in some scenes as well. And you've got these these villains who don't necessarily just ab- like fit into these But that's boxes. always what makes... That's why people like, like villains. Because yeah. it's not always just... You know, you have to think about their motives and it's... At what point does someone make the decision to, you know, do something so apparent as poisoning Boreal? Yeah, I mean, like, Asriel killed a small boy. Yeah, but also we forget that, don't we? he wants free will for the entire universe so yeah. is that okay exactly they're like they're not kind of capital v villains we but... want a louis theroux documentary on <laughs> mrs coulter yeah um <laughs> i think overall this one feels less like a sequel to series one and more like part one of a, another story do you get what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Uh, it, it doesn't, like, Northern Lights, although it's a bizarre ending in some ways, it's it's quite a clean ending as well. You could, in theory, just think the worlds have opened up, this opportunity awaits everyone, and that could be an ending. Whereas yeah. The Southern Life, I don't think, has any real finality to it. No. Other than the many people dying. <laughs> but it, it feels like they're getting ready to... Yeah, it feels like a call, to, a call to arms, like you said. Yeah. Um, okay, who is your MVP of this series? Mrs. Coulter. Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's absolutely right. Ruth Wilson uh, is only getting better on this. She she's she's not hissable, but she is totally evil, but also not and loving and compassionate and fun. But then also the complete opposite of that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah she's. She's a complex female character. Yeah. <laughs> Let's not reduce her down to that. No. Um, yeah, l- looking ahead, I'm really intrigued to see what might happen. Amber Spyglass, Series 3, has not been commissioned. So we don't know what's going to happen with that. I, I would absolutely love to see that adapted. Um, that's the book that I know the least so we've mentioned Lord of the Rings a couple of times on this episode like with that series uh, it's the third part Spyglass Return of the King that I don't go back to as much um, because Northern Lights and Fellowship of the Ring are very they're very comforting you've yeah. got your you've got your Shire you've got your Oxford and Subtle Knife is, is shorter and very exciting and it's, that's Darker. your Two Towers Helm's Deep uh, which you can jump into and be thrilled by but Amber Spyglass and Return of the King are your things that fuse it all together. You need this enormous ending to kind of reward you for getting everything else as well. Um, I'm very, very excited about that. And uh, that's it, which means that we've got one more question to answer, which is, what is Peggy? I think it would be doing a disservice to Peggy if she settled as anything other than what she is, <laughs> which is a little, little Jack Russell, yeah, through and through. By the time the next series comes around, 
she'll be a grown up. So this is your moment, Peggy. I don't think it would be right for her to settle as any other creature other than a feisty, curly whiskered Jack Russell. And that is what she is. She's she- also an hour late for her lunch. Yeah, but she's been a fantastic guest throughout this series. Thank you for joining us, Peggy, and being so quiet. That is it from us for this series. Um, But if you want to get more of us in your ears, if you can't get enough, uh, Louis, people can still hear your voice over on another podcast that just went out as well. Yes, you can hear me as a guest on the latest episode of the Best Girl Grip podcast. Um, You can hear an interview with me about my company Girls on Tops. If you want to uh, hear a bit more about my life outside His Dark Materials, you can listen to that. Yeah, that's not something where you're being forced to watch a TV show (laughs) by your partner. And I must say, it's a fascinating listen. Um, And if you want to hear more from me, I'm on the podcast Ghibliotech, which is a show that's all about the films of Studio Ghibli, if you're a fan of those. And if you want to keep up with us on social media, of course, Peggy is on Instagram. Her username is... Peggy underscore the Jack. You can find me over on Twitter at Louisa Maycock or on Instagram at Louisa Florence. And you can find me on Twitter as well. I'm there at Jake H. Cunningham. Thank you so much for listening and joining us as we've travelled through the worlds of His Dark Materials. It's been an absolute pleasure. Hopefully, we'll see you very soon. Shall we go and eat some Christmas canapé now? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. Dustbusters is produced by Jake Cunningham. Our music is by Dan Yakano, and our artwork is by Sam Mason. <laughs>